KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. Today we are talking about the art and culture shaping San Diego. I'm Jane Hindman. Here's to conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. A new coming-of-age play through a Filipina-American lens. That short story had the same name, and it was all about coming home from college and feeling disconnected from not just your family, but your hometown. Plus, Beth Accomando tells us about Slow Horses, a new TV series about British spies. Then, Scrabble with hip-hop wordsmiths and more in Julia Dixon Evans' Weekend Preview. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. A queer coming-of-age play, Everyday Vanilla, is set to premiere tonight at Moxie Theater. It follows 17-year-old Filipina-American Frankie Robles, an aspiring writer with dreams of leaving Southeast San Diego. The play takes us over the next 10 years of her life as Frankie navigates love, family, and friendship, and re-examines her relationship with her hometown. Everyday Vanilla is a self-produced play written by San Diego playwright Lonnie Gobeleza and directed by Earl Paus. Lonnie joins me now. Welcome, Lonnie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Glad you're here. And Earl, welcome to you too. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Glad to have you both. So I'd love to start with the inspiration behind the play. Lonnie, you wrote a, a short story that set the wheels in motion for Everyday Vanilla, right? Yes, that's right. I had a short story published in 2015 in a local anthology called Sunshine Noir 2, and you could still find it. And that short story had the same name, and it was all about coming home from college and feeling disconnected from not just your family, but your hometown, and kind of like exploring that lens through a young woman's perspective, a young Filipino woman's perspective. So why did you want to tell Frankie's story through this medium and on the stage as opposed to writing a book? That is a great question. I personally grew up with theater. I was a very introverted child, and my mother was a single mother. So she introduced me through performing arts, through our church, and then at school. 
I think honestly to give me something to do, but it also kind of helped me explore ways to communicate. And I began to really love doing that. And I think I, I think it did help me open up a little bit more. And so it's always just been this part of my life. But after college, I took more of a writing route, kind of getting back to the internal self. And a few years ago, I revisited theater and just acting in general as a favor to a friend. And then I came back to this story. And I, one of my mentors, um, when they read the short story, she said that she really saw it unfolding in a more dynamic way off the pages and really challenged me to explore that. And at the time, I was like, that, you know, that sounds like a great idea. But I didn't, you know, I don't, I didn't think I had the capacity to do that. But it always stuck with me. So last year, I got with my writing group, I started a writing group a few years ago and started writing just for fun. And I really enjoyed connecting writing and theater, which I hadn't done outside of an academic space. And the result of that was this play um, based on the short story. So I think it came about very organically, fortunately. Yeah. And so growing up, not being able to relate to many characters in the stories you were reading, that shaped your writing and, and the way you presented Frankie's story, right? Yes, absolutely. I think outside of this project, I write a lot of fiction. And so for this project, I really had to tap into real life events, things that happened, and, you know, frankly, things that I've avoided exploring fully. And that was a very difficult process. But I think it was, I think it was crucial to telling Frankie's story, um, this character's story in a way that felt honest, and it, it didn't feel filtered, or I didn't want it to feel filtered at all. And the way that I've learned to approach things is just to you know, write what I know. And I wouldn't say that it's 100% autobiographical, but I think if you see the play, something to know is that everything you see has happened either to myself or someone close to me and was, of course, used with permission. Right. Earl, this is actually your directorial stage debut, and you're an actor yourself, and we're very active in theater up in the Bay Area. What drew you to this specific production? Definitely Lonnie and our personal relationship, as well as our creative relationship that started more intimately when I moved back to San Diego. I reconnected with Lonnie at a scene workshop that was held at Paruti. And that was when we started to connect more creatively. And then even now, you know, recognizing how much similarities we had growing up, going to O'Farrell as well as Morse High School here and being into theater um, and then going to college for theater, all of that, right? played into the reconnection with Lonnie in the past few years. And this particular story, when when Lonnie presented it to me as a short story first and then as a play, I already really connected to the um, coming of age energy in this story. I love anything coming of age and that liminal space of, of a process of somebody growing up that has always interested me. Yeah. And you just mentioned, you know, Southeast San Diego is home for 
both you and Lonnie, what did it feel like to put on this play about wanting to leave home in your hometown? <laughs> it's very much my own personal story as well. I I really relate to San Diego having been vanilla. I graduated high school in 2007, so within that early 2000 bracket, I did feel San Diego was too vanilla for me. I was very much an outcast, very much a strange kid, very like punk rock, goth, alternative type of kid growing up. <laughs> and so I didn't feel a place here in San Diego. So I can relate to that too, especially being in the Filipino community. That was also something that's very unique to this play as well. Yeah. And like you said, you you know, it, you felt a very punk and alternative vibe, which is is clear in the play. So could you talk more about the period that the play is set in or, or where it starts? Yes, um, from 2006 to 2015, I believe. And at that time is at least for, for the high schoolers here in, in San Diego, there was very much this phase of emo, pop punk, and everybody was in bands and everybody was doing music. And that was just such a way for us to build community and to stay connected and not get into too much trouble, you know? Um, and I think that we really start the play in that, in that kind of energy. And then we start to definitely go into this post-grad life, which I feel like is the kind of, it's the kind of thing that college students go through regardless of what year um, or decade we're in. It's very much the same of this existential crisis, coming back home, losing your like identity, and then navigating how to find your feet again as an adult. Yeah. And Lonnie, Filipino-American dynamics are also a big focus of this play. We see the complicated but loving relationship between mother and daughter, older sisters and younger sisters. What was it like to really explore those family connections? Oh, it was honestly very emotional to explore them and, and also very collaborative. I wrote and rewrote and edited many times uh, the script before bringing it to my family. I think they were the most intimidating group to bring it to <laughs> because I, I think they are some of the harshest critics I know. But I, I knew that and I wanted to come to them with an open mind. And I would say that that, that really helped with the incorporating some of the family dynamics into the play. So as I was editing... I was uh, taking feedback live. I kind of incorporated some of the things that my family said while giving feedback to the play into the play. So just to kind of recap, it was it was very emotional and it was very um, collaborative. And I hope and I, I feel personally that it's brought me closer to my mother. I've learned a lot about her. You know, she directly inspires the character of Francesca, who's Frankie's mother. My name, my full name is Leilani. My mom named me after her. Her name is Layla. So there are just little things like that that I was really delighted to incorporate. Yeah. Frankie is also the oldest daughter in an immigrant family. And that comes with a lot of family and sisterly duties that she really wants to break away from. Can you tell me more about that? Yes, this is, I feel like 
not enough people talk about being, you know, an older sister or even an older sibling in not just a Filipino American family, but I think in even an Asian American family, uh, I can speak directly to my own experience and kind of what inspired, you know, the dynamics in the play. I am personally a middle child. So Frankie, and I, I haven't mentioned this to many people, is actually based on my older brother who um, as I mentioned, my mom is a single mother. So he took on so much of the weight, I think emotionally and even financially growing up to take care of not just me and my brother, but to make sure that my mom was okay. And I've learned, you know, as a young adult that that was really common for a lot of three siblings, not just the oldest, but, you know, middle children as well, where they're they're taking care of their families. And it's kind of this unsaid thing. It's not an ask. It's almost an expectation. You know, if there is a need in the family, you just fill it. But it could be things as like, you know, setting up the family bills, you know, automating that. Or it could be just like, you know, being there emotionally um, in ways that, you know, maybe my mother couldn't. And yeah, there's just a lot of I think challenges that older siblings and older sisters, I have a lot of friends who are older sisters in the Filipino community, they just bear a lot of that weight. And it's it's so beautiful and it's also very sad in a way. I think it's it's sad because we don't talk about it enough. And that's, for me, I wanted to open up a dialogue through this piece. Yeah. This play is also completely self-produced and presented separately from Moxie Theater's programming. Lonnie, how did the play all come together? Oh, it was also definitely a collaborative effort. I met with different creatives in the community, you know, folks who have written plays, directed plays, and um, just theater lovers and kind of gathered all the information, um, process, uh, and I put together, I I would hope that um, some of my uh, entrepreneurial skills helped out, but um, I really think that this play came together through the advice of um, professionals in the industry. Even though it is self-produced, I feel like we had a lot of support from um, people who have done this before many, many times, so I'm really grateful for that. And most of the cast and crew is Filipino-American. There aren't many stories about the Filipino-American experience in mainstream media and on stage. So this question is for both of you. What does it mean to present this particular story on the stage with Filipino creatives at the helm? To be very honest, I feel a lot of pressure, um, but I need to let go of that. I think the pressure is I want to be able to represent everyone just because we don't get a lot of spotlight. But I also feel very, I think I've said this before, I feel so privileged to be able to do this because it it is a rare opportunity. You know, we didn't find it. We had to create it. And we're still working through that. I I wouldn't have changed anything about, you know, having self-produced and doing it this way. And I think I'm going to learn a lot for, you know, future projects. And Earl, how about you? Yeah, as you stated earlier, I did spend a lot of time in the Bay Area and getting to know intimately the 
Filipino Bay Area community. And it's so interesting because here in California, the diaspora of Filipinos is so unique. We have San Francisco, we have LA, we have San Diego. And I think this particular show written by a San Diego born and raised Filipina who's also queer is a very unique story to Southern California Filipinos and then even more specific Southeast San Diego Filipino experience. So I really am like honored to be a part of this because it, it's a very specific type of experience that I haven't seen unfold on stage. So I mean, and not only does this story have representation of the Filipino community, it's also a coming of age story. So why was it important to to sort of tell it in this way? Oh, yes. I mean, I, I feel like definitely the youth today and young adults are having very similar experiences always, right? And particularly queer stories that are laced in a cultural lens is also something that's that's very important to tell because these nuances of how a mom talks to you or how or how you you interact with your siblings are really heavily influenced by a culture as well so it's a coming of age story that we could all relate to but it's also a cultural story that you can share with people that are even outside of that culture and can still relate to it. I've been speaking with Lonnie Gobeleza, playwright behind Everyday Vanilla, and director Earl Paus. Performances of Everyday Vanilla will begin at the Moxie Theater tonight and run through December 29th. You can get tickets at everydayvanilla.com. Lonnie and Earl, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. Still ahead, Beth Accomando tells us about the new season of the Apple TV series, Slow Horses. When I pay my money, I want my James Bond to drive around in an Aston Martin. I don't want to see him sitting on the toilet. But that's, that's, the, thing with, that's the thing with Mick, you know what I mean? He, he, he's made them real people. Hear about the British spies and more when we return. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. Welcome back. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. McHaren's Slow Horses is a series of darkly funny espionage novels. The books have been adapted by Apple TV Plus, with the show recently kicking off its third season. It features Gary Oldman as Jack Lamb, the head of a dysfunctional team of British intelligence agents known as the Slow Horses. Jack Loden plays River Cartwright, one of the slow horses trying to prove himself. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando spoke with the actors. But first, this teaser from season three. All right, mate, this is quick. I've got underlings to bully. I'm busy. No one in Slough House is busy. Come on, get on with it. A team from MI5 has gone rogue. And Standish has been taken. What's the plan? I need a team of good agents. I've just had the slow horses. The traitors are looking for ex-military. There will be a reckoning. Go, go! 
You can wipe your slate clean. Okay. There's another game being played that will probably leave me worse off. I just can't see what this one is yet. First of all, this is your third season with these characters. So I'm just wondering, where do you feel that these characters have now come? What, uh, Where are they at at this point that's different from seasons one and two? And Gary, if you want to start. Lamb is just, he's flatlined. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't normally do these kind of speeches, but this feels like a big moment. I know it's not easy being banished from MI5 to my department, but that's on you. Only screw-ups get sent to Slough House, and I've got to be honest, working with you has been the lowest point in a disappointing career. He's just on his frequency. He doesn't actually immediately react to the different scenarios that are presented. But there isn't, you know, the die is set. Lamb is, is um, I'm not knocking on the door of the scriptwriter saying, I need some more character development. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm set. So La- Lamb is, he's, he hasn't changed very much and he isn't, and he isn't going to change. Um, I thought Jack, actually earlier, you had a, an analogy, which I thought was rather good. I, I was saying that I think uh, the actors are, are, you can feel us, particularly when we came back and did this third one, is that we put the characters on and they feel like a jacket that's just sort of gradually getting more and more comfy. And I think Gary's right is that with Jackson Lamb, you know, I think that's always been the case. He's the most comfortable person in every room. Like he literally, he, he really is the most comfortable. There, there doesn't seem a situation where he seems on the back foot or anxious. I, I love imagining that Jackson Lamb has dealt with a lot of anxiety or anxiety inducing situations in his life. And that he's just sort of decided to sort of not care anymore. And it makes him operate a lot better than the rest of us who are tr- still trying, still think there's promise. The, the the dangling of the carrot of promise is still in front of all of us. And he's, it, it's nowhere, the, the, the carrot's miles, he, he didn't care. Like he's eaten them all. You know what I mean? He doesn't care anymore. That's what's quite wonderful. And that's what makes, in, in, in not, not in a negative way either, but whenever you're in a scene with Lamb, you kind of know that it's always going to end in a certain way, which is is, is a sort of roundabout way of going, well, you figure it out, because I really couldn't care less. <laughs> well, if Lamb's character hasn't changed, do you feel that Cartwright's relationship to him or that their relationship with each other has evolved or changed in any way? I think it definitely has. I think, um, and that, that that's one of the major reasons that I can't I can't wait to make more of it is because... I think he is begrudgingly realising and beginning to realise that he is quite a brilliant man, uh, Lamb. And the ad- I, like my own personal admiration for people that, that have hit a stage where they sort of really don't care, they don't sweat the small stuff. And, you know, that whole line where people say, you know, what other people think of you is none of your business. You know, Lamb's got that tattooed on his chest, there's a lot that someone like River who really cares what people think of him. Mm. He really cares. He is an egomaniac, insecure nutter in many ways. And I think he's beginning to learn. 
you know, he really is beginning to learn from Lamb. Not about espionage, but just how to be a man, <laughs> I think. Yeah, there's something to be said. You're not so earnest, uh, you know, as you get older. Lamb has had a career and has quite rightly experienced the sharp end of it and is is just older, wiser, cynical, sadly, but that's the life that they're in and that's the world that, 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 that they inhabit. But you do, I feel that as a, just as Gary, you know, I would sweat the small stuff when I was younger. And with age, you, uh, you, you mellow in that respect. I still want the work to be good. I still, I still care, but I, I don't have the same fire in the belly that I necessarily had when I was, you know, 27, 25, you know, um, at, the, at the beginning of a career. I don't know, maybe I subconsciously use it as in, in, in my makeup, my portrayal of Lamb. There are eight books, currently at least, <laughs> in the Slow Horses series. As actors, do you want to know where your characters end up? Have you read through all the books, or are you kind of uh, discovering these characters as the seasons go along? I, I read up to. I, yeah, there's clues in the books there, but um, I, I, I don't. I, ha I haven't read the whole series yet, no. I, exactly the same. I'm, I'm reading them as I go. Yeah, there's something quite exciting about it. Kind of scary as well. <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, I'm doing the same. And how do you think this season compares to the previous two, just in terms of tone and kind of where Mick Heron is taking the story? And like with the addition of Sean Donovan's character? This one involves one of our own, and, and also there's there's a whistleblower essentially who's going to expose some wrongdoing inside MI5, um, which potentially could harm not only MI5 but us the, at the Slough House. So there's sort of a plot in a way, under, underfoot to, to move us to one side. Um, but we have someone in our own team that is in jeopardy, and that makes it, um, as Jack was saying earlier, that, it, that this one is more, I guess, more personal um, to, to, to us. And Jack, talk a little bit about how Cartwright's character or his relationship with his grandfather is changing in this one. Yeah, his gra his grandfather is beginning to show signs of, of getting old, so to speak, and so uh, the responsibility of that to to Cartwright is is really coming to the fore, which is a, a, a just a magnificent thing to be able to play. It's a real gift to be sort of running around like a maniac trying to you know shooting things and not being or not being shot by things and then in the next minute sort of taking care of of, of an elderly relative basically um 
so that that that's been wonderful, and with Jonathan Price playing that role, it's twice as easy, of course. But I think he's what he's who he's always wanted to emulate, um, and to see him begin show show rough signs in this season of 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 of, of disintegrating, so to speak, for want of a better word, um, which is a painful thing for anybody, and you know a man that he's held up as his hero. And can feel it sort of slipping away through his fingers is quite is quite sad. So that's that's the beginning of of something there in this season of something that I don't know could 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 end up getting worse or not. I don't know, but um, yeah, that's where he is. And Gary, you've played spies in other movies, especially some John le Carré stories. How does the world that Mick Heron creates of espionage? How is like, how is he doing something different than a writer like John le Carré or, or just like other espionage films? Well, as much as I love John le Carré, it's not as dry. It, there's a lot more humour in Mick's take on this world. But that's what he's done. He's taken a genre that we all sort of, that we all know. I mean... John le Carre took it to a, 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 a level that was just, you know. But we're very used to Man from Uncle, James Bond, The Born Identity, Mission Impossible. You know, we've we're, there's a slew of these these of, of, of the the world of espionage, and Mick has sort of turned it on its head, and gives you characters that are like you, that are relatable. You, you know, in season one, we have Louisa in the laundrette doing a laundry. And we have Min, who is separated from his wife and is, you know, trying to really connect, you know, make his one phone call a week to the kids. You don't... You would never see Money Penny in a lingerie, or James Bond eating a kebab, or even talking. You know, the flatulence. You know, I, James Bond doesn't fart, and not that we want him to. I don't. I want my James Bond. <laughs> when I pay my money, I want my James Bond to drive around in an Aston Martin. I don't want to see him sitting on the toilet. But that's that's the thing with that's the thing with Mick. You know what I mean? He, he he's made them real people in a way that we can that we can relate to. And in fact, we spoke to a guy that was. He, uh, I think Jack. He was in MI6. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. And and I also spoke with Lacare when we were doing Tinker Taylor, and he was a spy, and he 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 he, he, would, he would talk about how incredibly boring it was with moments of adrenaline, and. I remember he said to me, I said, what was the thing? He said, the thing, the most terrifying thing about being a spy was when he was in Berlin, or when he, he said, it was your cover being blown. He said, the thing you always worried about at night were the footsteps on, on the stairs. And you go, they got me. 
you know. He said, but it was mind-numbingly boring, you know, big moments in between. And so it isn't jets and jetpacks and Aston Martins and, you know, speedboats and all of that. It's, it's very dull at times, very dull work. And I think that that's, that's what, that's the world. That's what makes it, I, I'd like to think also, it's why it's, it's been thus far very successful. I think people can really watch it and relate to it. Yeah. Well, our last interview men- ended after you brought up flatulence. So this is a good place to end this one as well. Thank you so much. Always for your a good. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Beth Accomando speaking with actors Gary Oldman and Jack Loden. Slow Horses is currently streaming on Apple TV Plus and just started its third season. Coming up, the live music you can hear over the weekend in San Diego, plus Scrabble with local hip-hop icons and a classic production of A Christmas Carol. For me, I feel like it's universal. It's not just a Christmas story. It is about second chances, second opportunities, and uh, participating in your community. That's ahead on your weekend preview. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Welcome back to Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. For our weekend preview, we have Scrooge, Scrabble, and more arts and culture events around town this weekend. Joining me with all the details is KPBS arts producer and editor, Julia Dixon-Evans. Julia, welcome. Hey, Jade. Thanks for having me. Always glad to have you here. So let's start with A Christmas Carol. This is a story most of us probably have seen in movie or play form or even read the book. So tell us about this production. Yeah, this is at Signet Theater. And for about nine years now, they've been doing a really nice uh, like sound and music-informed production of A Christmas Carol. It's actually an otherwise pretty traditional adaptation of the Dickens book. Signet is a theater in Old Town, and if you haven't been, it's it's a pretty great place to catch a show. The space is really intimate, but still feels like a full theater. So every seat kind of feels like you're right there up close. And I talked to Sean Murray, who is Signet's co-founder, and also for the last couple of years, he's played Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge, and he is a fantastic Scrooge. I mean, you could just be grumpy and pull it off, but Murray has really great 
timing. I think there's a lot of comedy in this performance and and also a lot of mystery. You know from the get-go that there's something kind of repressed in this character, and, and that gives you a little hope. And you mentioned that you spoke with Sean Murray. You actually caught up with him this week between shows. Let's take a listen to that. So this is known as one of the world's greatest ghost stories, and which means you're now playing one of the world's most haunted characters, Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> and he's also synonymous with grumpy and, and mean. Here's a little clip from Signet's production this year. What's that? What you down for? Nothing. Oh, <laughs> oh, Mr. Scrooge, bless you. You wish to be anonymous. I wish to be left alone. Since you ask me what I wish, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas. I can't afford to make idle people merry. Besides, my taxes support those establishments I have mentioned. They are, those who are badly off must go now. Oh, but many can't go there. Many would rather die. But if they'd rather die, they'd better do it. Decrease the so- And there's also, of course, so much more to Scrooge than the Bah Humbug. What is it about that character that you're drawn to? Well, it's an incredibly complex character. People focus on his anti-Christmas stands and his... Um, you know, resistance to being included in society and culture. He really has isolated himself. And when we get to explore the different uh, events in his life that helped shape that view, you learn that he's actually, he's hiding a lot of pain in himself by putting up a very thick facade of, of resistance. And and so the, the attitudes that he shows in that scene are, I mean, unfortunately, I think they are not unusual even today where people feel like I've paid my taxes, I'm helping the poor, I really can't afford to do much more than that. I have to rely on the system to work and so leave me alone. So when he goes through this series kind of kicking and screaming at first, he's like I he makes he just has so much fun sort of giving these ghosts a lot of grief. But the ghosts eventually break him down and show him three different very important lessons. One is how Christmas and various experiences he had with Christmas really shaped his contemporary viewpoint. And he learns from that Christmas present experience and watching the Cratchits that you don't need a lot of money, you don't need a lot of material things to still feel warm and connected with your community and that there's strength in your community. And Scrooge realizes that he's not a part of that. So for me, there's this track of I mean, all of us have a certain degree, perhaps, of of those feelings, and especially when times are tough. And I think everyone is rooting for Scrooge, and kind of the meaner he is, the more we're looking forward to when he changes. So for me, I feel like it's universal. It's not just a Christmas story. It is about second chances, second opportunities, and uh, participating in your community. I love that. And... I want to talk a little bit about your process of adapting this play for Signet Theater, especially why is humor such a big part of this production? There's a lot of almost Shakespearean darkness in the story. Uh, It goes to some very dark places. And I think for it to also simultaneously be a Christmas celebration, you, you need to find a way to tell the story that draws the audience in and helps them become participants in the, in the telling of the story, the creating of the story. And so humor is a great way to disarm people. Uh, they get to enjoy some of the sort of crude things he says, Scrooge says. And there's a lot of humor in the book, too. 
and our adaptation is really, really strictly adhering to the book and the tone of the book. There's so many ways to interpret this book onto the stage or even onto film that it really does open it up to interpretation, not so much the story, but how to tell the story. And so I think I just feel like the inclusion of humor helps make it feel like a Christmas celebration and not just a moral story. But it is both of those things. I also wanted to ask about some of the other elements, like the special effects and the the puppets. These are all really integral to the Signet production. What can you tell us about those choices? Our version originally started as a, we adapted it as a 1940s radio telling. So we were standing in front of period microphones and and performing it as if we were doing, say, the Lionel Barrymore, famous Lionel Barrymore radio version. And so all of the sound effects were done by a Foley artist on stage, like a radio, old radio show would do. Uh, when that idea evolved into removing the microphones and setting it in the 1840s and, and really fully staging it, uh, there was something inherently fun about how those Foley effects enhanced the storytelling. I know that you can never put that book on stage fully and you can never put it on film fully that so much of what that book triggers in a, in a reader is in your imagination you f- you fill out all the details and the 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 sounds and all I mean, it's so rich and so what billy thompson and i we adapted it together the thing that we uh, felt was important was that the audience was given just enough tools to fill in all of those gaps in their imagination so we don't want to show everything. We want to imply things so that the audience can fill in flying ghosts and chains and all the different special effects. So we do just enough special effects so that we engage the audience in filling in the other part of it. And that includes the children, the puppets that all play the children in the show. And there's something in, inherently magical about a life-size puppet on stage that the way they actually take on full life and so we just felt like the puppets can be so much more fun, a fun way of telling the story. There are countless stage adaptations and musicals, dozens and dozens of movies and cartoons. And these have, these have all influenced your own career as well. Why do you think this story is so enduring? I could talk a while on that, and I know we don't have all that time. Um, <laughs> I think there's several reasons why. There's something universal about watching someone given the opportunity to redeem themselves. I think that's important because I think people either know people who could or should take a look at their life and say, maybe I, I can change for the better, or even look within and say, there are aspects of my own life that I am shut off to. And uh, how much more will I be able to engage in the world if I let go of those things that hold me back? There's something very personal, I think, about Scrooge's story. We all want to see those people redeemed and brought back into society uh, as happy, contributing people. And so that's why I think it lasts. I think that's what the enduring quality of that story is, is that you can relate to it, if not hope for it. That 
was Sean Murray, co-founder and artistic director of Signet Theater. Their production of A Christmas Carol will be on stage through December 30th. I'm here with KPBS arts producer Julia Dixon-Evans, and we're talking about art and culture events this weekend. So next up is a hip-hop-themed Scrabble Night, which sounds really fun. Uh, (laughs) What do you know about that? So this is a KPBS event. It features our podcast host, Parker Edison. He's going to be taking on rapper Mickey Vale in what they're calling a philanthropic Scrabble battle. So they want to start having these conversations with younger people in the hip-hop community about philanthropy. So they're going to lead by example. They're going to put their own money on the line, and the winner of the Scrabble match donates the prize money to a local cause of their choice. There'll be hip-hop performances from Rick Scales, Mickey Vale herself, and DJ Root, and also a photography exhibit on view. This is at the Mental Bar, the cafe in Encanto. It's going to be a really artistic and fun afternoon, and just watching two really great wordsmiths play Scrabble should be fun in and of itself. It's Sunday from 11 to 3 at the Mental Bar, and it's all free. Wonderful. Also, in San Ysidro, there's an international group show at the Front Gallery. So tell me why this is on your radar. Yeah, it's called Theorema, and it is a group show featuring Margaret Noble, who's an interdisciplinary visual sound artist in San Diego, and Jaime Lobato from Mexico City, and then an internationally based artist collective called Interspecifics. In this exhibit, there's augmented reality. They have bioluminescent bacteria lamps and then other installations that are all kind of this mesh of art with technology and science and imagining these possible futures. One of the works is a set of live camera feeds from these nature preserves all over the world. This is Margaret Noble's work. So you can see giraffes or alligators. And she also has a set of postcards. They're set up on this rack like in a newsstand that you can actually spin and pick pick up and browse through. Those are called convenience atrocities. And the postcards kind of call out your own tiny climate shames. And it's on view through late January. And the gallery is open and free Tuesday through Saturday, 11 to 6. But there's also a virtual artist talk tonight at 6 p.m. All right. And finally, some music. What's on your radar for live music this weekend? Okay, so there's one show here. A bunch of really great local acts on my radar are all playing at the same time at Soda Bar on Sunday. There's a band called Russ Boulevard. They're a a great indie band. They're named after the actual street in San Diego. This is Los Primos from their new EP. It's just out this fall. And also playing is Cheyenne Benton. She was nominated for a San Diego Music Award earlier this year, and her album, Beautiful Chaos, just came out this spring. It's a really great listen, kind of this sparkling indie pop sound. And I'll leave you with the title track, Beautiful Chaos. You can find details on these and more arts events and sign up for Julia's weekly arts newsletter at kpbs.org slash arts. 
I've been speaking with KPBS arts producer Julia Dixon-Evans. Julia, thanks so much. Thank you, Jade. That's our show today. Don't forget to watch Evening Edition tonight at 5 for in-depth reporting on San Diego issues. The Roundtable is here tomorrow at noon, and if you ever miss a show... You can find the Midday Edition podcast on all platforms. Before I go, I want to thank the Midday Edition team. Producers Juliana Domingo, Andrew Bracken, Brooke Ruth, Ariana Clay, and Laura McCaffrey. Art segment contributors Beth Accomando and Julia Dixon-Evans. Technical producers Ben Redlosk and Rebecca Chacon. Our theme music is provided by San Diego's own Surefire Soul Ensemble. I'm your host, Jade Hindman. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.